Do you ever have one of those times when you hear a word or phrase that you've used a lot, but suddenly it strikes you how strange it is? Yeah? English is just one of those languages, isn't it? We've absorbed words and phrases from so many other languages. Well, this week in preparing for this sermon, I started to think a bit about one of those common yet sort of bizarre words, which is this, aftermath. Sounds like a school subject, right? Well, I looked it up, and it's actually a word rooted in medieval agriculture, math being related to a Germanic word for mowing. Farmers would mow the grass or the hay for their crops, and then the little grass that would grow after that crop had been harvested was the aftermath, the after-mowing. Did you know this, Smith? All right. I taught them something about agriculture. But of course, since then, that word has started to refer to the events and the consequences after something big has occurred, and usually something bad. We talk about the aftermath of a hurricane or an earthquake or a tornado, the aftermath of gun violence or a major conflict. So usually, aftermath means something big and bad has happened. When we talk about aftermath, we're also usually talking about cleanup of some kind, whether that's physical, clearing away rubble, or getting food and water to people, putting power lines back up, or cleanup that's social, caring for people with PTSD, working through grief, getting jobs, restoring the social fabric. Aftermath is messy, messy with its own set of dangers, and it can last a long time. As I keep trying to tell my kids, cleaning up often takes a lot more time than making a mess. They haven't gotten that yet. Today, as I mentioned earlier, is among other things Juneteenth, which is our newest federal holiday. Juneteenth celebrates the day when the news of emancipation finally reached the last group of enslaved folks in Galveston, Texas, and it took two and a half years, two and a half years for that Emancipation Proclamation to reach everyone who was meant to be freed. Aftermath. And of course, the aftermath of slavery, Jim Crow, mass incarceration, we're still dealing with that here and now. You know where I'm going with this. We're in the aftermath here at Redeemer. We are looking around, trying to figure out what's up, what's down, what's good, what needs fixing, what's rubble, what's salvageable, and who will fix it? I'm very aware as I stand here that it's Father's Day, and one who had been our spiritual father in the faith is not here. Aftermath. Where is God in our aftermath? Where should we look to see him at work? Is he here with us in the rubble? Will he rebuild or will he move on? Aftermath is a scary, uncertain time where it might feel like everything is up for grabs. So what does faith look like here? The lectionary for today gives us two very compelling stories of aftermath. One encourages us. One is a little more sobering. But both point us to the power and presence of God in our midst, even in the aftermath. So let's take a look. First, we have this story of the prophet Elijah, one of the most famous stories in the Old Testament. The passage begins in the midst of everything, in the aftermath. 
You might remember that King Ahab and Queen Jezebel uh, led the nation of Israel astray again in worshiping Baal. And the prophet Elijah had been at work almost single-handedly calling the people back to faithfulness over and over and over again. The chapter before ours describes this huge spiritual battle between Elijah as the champion of Yahweh versus 450 prophets of Baal, one against 450. And the challenge, the God who brings the fire is the true God. So the prophets of Baal do their thing all day long. They shout, they dance, they shed their blood, they prophesy frantically, nothing, no response. Elijah soaks the altar and the wood with water in the midst of this drought. Again and again, he pours the water till everything's drenched and the water pools around the altar in a trench. And Elijah simply prays and a fire rains down from heaven and burns the whole thing up. The sacrifice, the wood, the offering, the stones, the soil, even the water and the trench around it. Yahweh's king. The people slay the false prophets. The rain falls and ends the drought. They all made a deal with Elijah that if he won, they'd be back on board with Yahweh. So this is victory. If only the movie ended here. But then comes the aftermath. And nothing changes. The people still worship Baal. King Ahab goes back to Jezebel, and she turns all of her considerable fury towards Elijah. You are a dead man. So much for victory. So Elijah does what I think many of us probably would have done. He runs. He runs and runs and runs. He leaves behind his servant. He goes into the desert alone because he is just done. If that didn't get, it, get them back, Lord, what will? His best efforts brought to nothing. He's got nothing left. He finds a little tiny bit of shade under the tree and he lays down. He still manages to talk to the Lord, but he says, I'm done. Take my life. I might as well be dead. And he gives up and he goes to sleep. Anybody ever felt like that? I have. But God doesn't take his life. God sends food and water and lets him sleep, rinses and repeats. And God gives him the energy to travel just a little further to Mount Horeb, which is also, you might know it as Mount Sinai, that place where Moses too met God face to face. God gives Elijah just enough strength to get to that place of encounter. What are you doing here, Elijah? It's a good question. I fought the good fight. Everyone else has forsaken you. It's only me left, and they're trying to kill me. An honest answer. Elijah's exhausted from holding the line for so long and feeling so alone. God doesn't try to argue with him or even comfort him. He says, go stand in the rock. I'm going to pass by. Just as I did with Moses so many years before, in the aftermath, you are going to encounter me. Go stand and wait. Then comes the wind and the earthquake and the fire, this common way in these oral traditions at the time to talk about the gods revealing themselves as warriors terrifying their enemies, thundering in judgment. Baal himself was depicted as a god grasping a handful of thunderbolts. But those gods were all destruction, all domination, 
all bloodletting and fear. Yahweh's not just another God destroying on a whim, not just another scary deity. Yahweh speaks. And he speaks not in the storm, but in the silence that follows, which I think is not a whisper, as we often think of it, but as one commentator puts it, the resonating silence after the clamor of destruction. It is with silence hanging in the air that Yahweh's voice of direction may be heard. Elijah recognizes the presence in that silence, and he covers his face, and he draws near. Now, his thinking hasn't changed. Do you notice that? He says the exact same thing the second time, which is a little encouraging for me, honestly. He still draws near to that holy silence, and God doesn't chastise him. God always wants for us to draw near in honesty, even when we're feeling self-pity. When we draw near with what we're actually thinking and feeling, that is an act of faith. And how God responds is he reveals to Elijah that Elijah's not alone, that God is still at work, way beyond Elijah. Now, our lectionary leaves this out, which makes it feel a little abrupt, right? But the verses right after where our lectionary ends In those verses, God gives Elijah an assignment. He says, go anoint three successors, Hazael and Aram, Jehu and Israel, and Elisha for you. They're going to get the job done. Oh, and by the way, there are 7,000 others in Israel who have not bowed down to Baal. You are not the only one. You have work to do. You have a future. You're not alone. In this story of aftermath, God first tends to Elijah's physical needs. So Elijah has the strength to go to God and to hear from him. In our own aftermath, God will tend to our needs, our physical needs and our spiritual needs. It's often said that one of the takeaways of this passage is that sometimes we just need a snack and a nap. And when we regain our strength, regain even just a little strength, a little clarity in our mind and hearts. When the clamor of the storm ceases and we can sit in the silence of God's presence and pay attention, God will speak to us too. We will have work to do. We have a future in the Lord. We are not alone. Our second story of aftermath If Dana can cover the whole book of Revelation, I can cover two stories. This story is equally dramatic, but a little more sobering. It's another famous Bible story from the Gospel of Luke. Again, this epic battle between Jesus and the man with the legion of demons. How do we ever think the Bible was boring with this stuff in it? This is one of the longest individual stories in the Synoptic Gospels. And between that and the really dramatic way that Luke tells it, we're clued in to pay attention. Right before this, Jesus and the disciples have crossed the Galilee. You know the story. They run into the enormous storm that threatens to shipwreck them. Jesus was napping. They wake him, save us! He calms the storm, and they are amazed. That was right before this passage. And after all that drama, they land on the shore opposite Galilee and straight into more drama. They are in Gentile territory. This is Jesus' one foray into Gentile territory. 
And a scary dude jumps out at them right away. He's been tormented by demons for years and years, utterly dehumanized, living like an animal, unclothed, unhoused, living in the tombs as if he was already dead, unclean, unclean, unclean. His townspeople had tried to restrain him, chains on his hands and his feet under guard, but the powers that had control of him were so strong, he burst out anyway like the Hulk and was driven into the wilderness. Now, when we read this, or at least when I do, we probably feel some compassion for this man. What an awful life, an awful thing. Well, I bet the townspeople had more trouble feeling some compassion for him because he was scary. He was dirty. He was unpredictable. Think about how we feel when we walk by someone who's unhoused, maybe mentally ill. And I'm not saying that mental illness is the same thing as demon possession, right? It's just one of the comparisons that we have in our day. Think about when you walk by that person. There's compassion, but there's fear, and there's, a, there's reason for that, right? Well, Jesus meets this man face to face without fear. And then the epic battle between the powers of darkness and the power of Jesus ensues. What is your name? If Jesus is speaking to the man, he's asking about his dignity and humanity. What's your name? If he's speaking to the demons inside, he's getting some power over them. Name being power. And the answer is legion. In that time, in that context, you cannot hear that word, that name, without immediately thinking Rome. Rome that had brutalized. Rome that had oppressed. Rome that had dominated and exploited and enslaved. And face to face with that legion of demons, that, that symbol, that name of the terrifying power of Rome, it turns out there's no contest after all. Jesus has all the power to send them into the abyss, to send them away. Off they go, into the poor unclean pigs, into the depths of the lake. I really do feel sorry for the pigs. But the message is clear. Jesus' power is supreme over the scariest, strongest forces that enslave and dehumanize a human being. There's no contest. Jesus' power brings dignity to those who thought they were better off dead. The powers of darkness can only destroy, dehumanize, and enslave. Jesus brings freedom and dignity and jubilee. Then comes the aftermath. The people in charge of the pigs go, what? And they go and tell it. And everyone from the whole town comes to see what had happened. And what do they find? They find a man, totally restored, clothed, right-minded, sitting calmly at the feet of Jesus a disciple, a healed man. This is the part where we're supposed to cheer. But instead, the people are afraid. There is power here that they don't understand. They lost some money from those pigs. What could be next? They are afraid. And they decide, as one commentator puts it, that they prefer the demons they have normalized to the liberating power that is unknown. They're afraid in the unknown of the aftermath, and they ask Jesus to go away. Whew. Jesus was right there, 
scattering the darkness from before their paths, and they send him away because they're afraid. Do we do that? Do I do that? The kingdom changes everything. There's a reason that Jesus tells us to count the cost. But the man who had been oppressed and freed knows where he wants to be, right where Jesus is. Please, let me come with you. I know I'm a Gentile. We'll figure it out. Just let me come with you as your disciple. Jesus says, no. There's one more step for your healing. You've been unhoused. Now you can go home. And guess what? You get to be the first Gentile evangelist. Go. Tell everyone how much God has done for you. And the man goes, and he tells everyone he can find how much Jesus has done for him. It's sobering. But even in this story, when the people send Jesus away because of their fear in the aftermath, even then they are not left alone. They're left with a witness who keeps on pointing to Jesus. And remember, we're in the book of Luke. As we read further in Luke-Acts, we see that he didn't remain the only one. Here, too, in the aftermath, we hear, you have work to do. You have a future. You are not alone. So here we are in our aftermath. We know that we've been through something dramatic, experienced by some of us as traumatic, experienced by all of us as something big and awful, something that changes things. We don't yet agree on what it means or even what happened, why it happened. We don't yet together have a clear sense of what in it was right and what was not. We don't yet even agree on who and what really needs healing and how in the world that should happen. But we know that we hurt We know that it hurts, that we are hurting together. Sometimes when we're hurting, we feel like Elijah, in despair, withdrawing, ready to give up and walk away. Sometimes when we're hurting, we might feel more like the man who was demon-possessed, ready to shout and smash something or destroy something and take others down with us if we can. It's just too much. And sometimes when we're hurting, we feel like the townspeople, confused and afraid, just wanting to go back to normal. Whatever shape our hurt, your hurt, takes in the aftermath of the awful, just know this. Jesus meets you there. Jesus is there with you and with me. He shows you his hands and his feet, rich wounds yet visible above in beauty glorified. He waits patiently in your storm of emotions or acting out or shutting down until the storm quiets and you're able to hear his voice to you in the silence after the storm. Eat something. Journey a little ways. I've got a job for you. What is your name 
child of God. Abide with him. Stick close to him. Wait for him. Talk to him. Shout at him if you need to. If you have no words, cry, dance, build something. If you're tired, rest. If you're hungry, eat. If you're thirsty, drink. If you're joyful, sing. If you're grieving, wail. Just don't send him away. Let us not send him away. Let us sit at his feet, for he will never leave us nor forsake us. Aftermath is an unsettling time. Healing, too, can be a fearsome thing because sometimes healing hurts. But we are not alone. I am not alone. You are not alone. We have each other, and Jesus stands in our midst. He will speak, and he will heal. We will have work to do. Good work, fruitful work, blessed work. We have a future in the Lord because of his faithfulness. We are not alone. Let us pray. Jesus, steady us through the storm, we pray. Turn our hearts to you with whatever's going on in them so that we might hear your words, peace be with you. We may not believe today that we have a future, that we have work, that we're not alone. We may not believe it. And you stand with us anyway. Tend to each heart, I pray, O oh Lord, in this room, joining at home, joining in the future. Tend the hearts of those who couldn't join today because it's too painful. You are at work, O oh Lord. You are good. You have not abandoned us. Sustain us, we pray. We lift all these things to you. And in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. <laughs>